So uh, this morning, we're going to continue our studies in the book of Joshua. And with God's help, we'll try to learn some lessons for ourselves from the experiences of the children of Israel as we have them recorded here in this passage of Scripture. If you were with us previously, uh, you may recall that some weeks ago, we spent some time considering the miraculous manner in which God brought the children of Israel across the Jordan. The river was full, in full flood, and had burst its banks. And for all intents and purposes, it was impassable. But by a supernatural intervention, God made it possible for his people to walk across the riverbed as if on dry land. And the central feature of that crossing was the Ark of the Covenant. We was carried to the water's edge, the waters were held back. And then the Ark of the Covenant was held by the priests in the middle of the riverbed while all God's people passed by. Men of war, women, children, cattle and all their belongings passed safely across to the other side. Only when all the people had passed safely was the ark brought out onto the west bank of the Jordan. And as soon as they did so, the river returned to its former state, a river in full flood, bursting its banks and impassable as before. And you may recall that the ark of the covenant pointed us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark was the place from which God spoke to his covenant people It was a special box we saw that contained the tablets of stone on which the law was written. And it was God's perfect law, which no one could keep. It condemned both them and it condemns us alike. For Paul rightly tells us in Romans 3 that all have fallen short of the glory of God that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, and no one is righteous, no, not one. But we were also reminded that the ark was a place of forgiveness. The lid of the ark was known as the mercy seat, for it was there that the high priest sprinkled the blood once a year on the Day of Atonement. And we saw that this looked forward to the blood that would one day be shed, by our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark then pointed to the means of salvation. Those who were condemned by the law, contained within the ark, could also find forgiveness at the mercy seat, which was at the top of the ark. Not because they deserved to be forgiven, the law had put paid to that, but the mercy seat pointed to undeserved forgiveness, undeserved mercy. That's the nature of mercy. It's not deserved. And undeserved mercy was to be found if they looked to God, confessing their sins, and turned in dependence on him. And we saw also that the land of Canaan had been promised by God to his covenant people back in Genesis, way back in Genesis chapter 15. So now God was fulfilling 
the promise that that he had made. By a miraculous intervention, God brought the people into that inheritance that had been promised to them. And the Ark of the Covenant was central to their safe passage across the Jordan. And so too we, if we are to enter into our inheritance as Christians, we will only do so as a result of the miraculous intervention of God. We could never enjoy the blessings that come to us as Christians through our own efforts. Like the Israelites, we are sinners. Like the Israelites, God's law condemns us. But like the Israelites, we can find undeserved mercy if we turn to Christ. We're dependent then on the Lord Jesus Christ for our forgiveness and in a very real sense. Our inheritance is to be found in him. Well, we start the passage this morning in Joshua 4, verse 19, when we read there, the people came out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho, on the west bank of the river Jordan, but to the east of Jericho. Before the Israelites press on to possess the land of Canaan, we find that they pause by the river Jordan, which they've just crossed. For there are three things that Joshua has to do before the children of Israel press on to claim their inheritance. And we're going to review each of these this morning. We'll consider these as we find them described in the passage that we've just read in Joshua chapter 4 and Joshua chapter 5. And we look at them under three headings, a relationship recounted, a relationship renewed, and then a relationship remembered. A relationship recounted, a relationship renewed, and then a relationship remembered. A relationship recounted then. We encountered the memorial stones that are spoken of at the beginning of this section. We encountered them last time we met and looked at this together. We encountered them at the beginning of chapter 4. For there we read the instruction that the Lord gave to Joshua concerning them. He was told to select 12 men one from each of the tribes of Israel. Each man was to select a stone from the riverbed, the dry riverbed, from the place where the priests had stood holding the Ark of the Covenant while all the tribes of Israel had crossed over on dry land. And as Joshua had been instructed, so Joshua had done. And here in verse 20 we read, those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. Now if you go walking in the mountains, you'll know that often beside the path you will see a small pile of stones. They're placed there by walkers as they go past. 
The problem with mountains in places like Wales or Scotland or the Lake District is that the weather can change so quickly. The mist comes in, visibility decreases, and then it's easy to lose your way. And in those conditions, you might only be able to see a few feet ahead of you through the mist. And then isn't it a great relief when you see a pile of stones appearing out of the gloom, reassuring you that you're on the right path. The stones then send a message to those who see them. The cairns in the mountains tell you where the path is. Well, just as the stones beside the path in the mountains give a message to those who pass by, these stones that Joshua sets up in Gilgal are there to send a message to those who see them. And the message is explained by Joshua in verses 22 and 23 in the place that we're looking at. Joshua says, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. I wonder if you notice something about this explanation, which might be slightly surprising. Do you see that the the emphasis is not centred solely on the crossing of the Jordan, which has just taken place? Joshua highlights that the crossing of the Jordan is a repetition, a repetition of a similar event that happened more than 40 years earlier, when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And you may recall that uh, the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea in a similar way. God held the waters back so the people were able to cross on dry land. So you see, Joshua highlights that the memorial stones refer not to one, but to two miraculous crossings. Now, back in Genesis chapter 15, we read that God made a covenant with Abraham. And God promised to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land where Abraham was then, which was the land of Canaan. Not only that, that, though, God explained to Abraham that his descendants would first have to be slaves in another land. And he explained that they would be afflicted there for 400 years. And God promised that after those 400 years were over, he would judge that land and the people would be brought out with great possessions. And God promised that they would then come and inherit the land in which Abraham was then living. So you see, the message of the stones was not just that God had allowed the Israelites to cross the Jordan on dry land. The message was that God had kept his promise to Abraham and to his descendants. 
The message wasn't that God had just worked a miracle at the Jordan. The message was that God is faithful and he will keep his covenantal promise. And the message is emphasized further by the fact that 12 stones were taken from the riverbed and placed in Gilgal. There was one stone representing each tribe, highlighting that God had fulfilled his promise to the children of Israel. The message of the stones was that God had made a covenant with a particular people and that they were precious to him. The message was that notwithstanding their unbelief and their sin and at times their downright rebellion in the intervening time, the Lord had set his love upon them And the message of those stones was that this love would not and could not be shaken. That God had kept his promise to Abraham all those years before. Well, who then was supposed to hear this message? We find the answer in verse 24, where we read that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This verse tells us that there are two groups of people who need to hear the message. The first are described as all the peoples of the world, and that's precisely what happened, and we read of it in the next verse, verse 1 of chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. Geographically, if you follow that, it covers all the land from the Jordan across to the Mediterranean Sea. From the east to the west, everybody had heard the news. No one had failed to hear the news of what God had done. The news may not have brought them to belief, but everyone had heard how God had been faithful, how God had rescued his people from captivity in Egypt, and how he'd brought them miraculously to the land that he had promised. How do we apply that to ourselves today? Well, in 1 Peter 2, 5, we are described as being living stones, being built up into a spiritual house, built on the chief cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't there then a sense in which the church today is the equivalent of those 12 stones in Gilgal. The challenge then, the world hears our message, such that no one is ignorant of the news of this mighty hand of our faithful God. But the second group to hear the message of the stones are the Israelites themselves. If you look back at the end of verse 24, it says that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Isn't it interesting that the Israelites had just experienced the most remarkable 
dramatic act of salvation, effectively. And yet God knows that they will still need help in order to remain faithful to him. Perhaps it's no surprise that in Psalm 103, the psalmist implores us, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And it's a sad fact that however long we may have been Christians, we are prone to forget. The business of life presses in. Worries and cares begin to absorb our thoughts. Relationships with special friends begin to take prominence in our affections. All these things can crowd in and squeeze God out of our lives to one measure or another. Then we need to be reminded of the message of the stones if we are Christians. The message that God has made a covenant with us. That we've been chosen to be his special people. That we are the object of his particular love. Don't we need to be reminded that God is faithful whatever our circumstances and whatever difficult providences we may be going through. His providential care can indeed be relied upon. Don't we need to be reminded of the love of God and to seek after him because he has set an exclusive, faithful and constant covenant love upon us. Well, if the stones have any link, the stones of Gilgal have any link with us as a church today, surely tells us where we must find those reminders, those encouragements. It's to be found in the church with our fellow believers. Tending the means of grace hearing the word preached, meeting around the Lord's table, enjoying fellowship with one another and encouraging one another along the way. May we as a church be like those stones, those piles of stones on the mountainside, coming out of the gloom, showing those who are wavering what is the true and correct path. Well, if that's a relationship recounted, we move on to chapter two, chapter five, verse two, to see a relationship renewed. The second action that Joshua takes before the people pass into the land to lay hold of their inheritance is recounted there. We read, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now, at first, this may seem a rather odd instruction. But we can understand it better if we read on into verses 5 and 6. For we're reminded there of one of the darkest episodes in the journey of God's people from the land of Egypt through to the land which God had promised Abraham those centuries before. 
For we read of this episode back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, and you may recall that having been brought out of Egypt by the miraculous intervention of God, the Israelites were then led through the wilderness to the borders of Canaan at Kadesh Barnea. Spies were sent into the land who brought back news of its fertility and its fruitfulness, and it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua and Caleb were convinced that God would lead them into the land, but the other ten spies counseled that Israel could not possibly take the land due to the strength of the opposition. And the people listened to those ten spies, and they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. They complained against the Lord for bringing them thus far, and then they even proposed choosing a new leader to take them back to Egypt. These were members of God's covenant community. They'd experienced the miraculous intervention of God in their lives, and yet, in unbelief, they made an extraordinary choice. They rejected God and preferred to live their old lives as slaves in Egypt. Such a blatant rejection of God was a rejection of his covenant love, a rejection of that very covenant relationship with which God committed to have with Abraham and his descendants. In a very real sense, the people did not want anything to do with God. And God granted them the desire of their heart. The people rejected God and so they never inherited the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness for the next 40 years until one by one they perished there. Now we noted earlier that God had made a promise of a covenant or a covenant with Abraham. Sometime later, God established circumcision as the sign of that relationship. God's promise was to Abraham and his descendants, and so the mark of that relationship was given to Abraham and his male children. What about those men wandering in the desert for 40 years until they died? You see, they had made an awful choice. They'd rejected God and his covenant, and they had to live with the consequences of that choice. Not only was it that they never inherited the promised land, but their children could not receive the sign of that covenant relationship which their fathers had rejected. Only Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, lived to enter the promised land. All the other men crossed the Jordan and entered Canaan, had been born in the wilderness, and did not have the mark of the covenant in their bodies. 
So this then is why the Lord told Joshua to circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. It was because none of them had been circumcised before then. Now I need to say a word to the children and younger people in the congregation at this point. Because the story of these people who rebelled is one of the saddest episodes in the Bible. These people were like you. They'd been brought up in the church, a community of God's people. They were like you. They had been taught about God from their earliest childhood. They were like you. Their parents loved God. And the most wonderful thing their parents could do for their children was to tell them the most incredible and precious news that God had loved them. They were like you. God had prepared an inheritance for them, which was so perfect that words could not adequately describe it. And they were like you because they had the gospel within their grasp. Something the Bible describes as a pearl of great price and being more precious than gold. So you see, these people who we read of here, they were like you. But then something dreadful happened. They had these wonderful privileges But it was as if they just threw them back at God's face. And as a result of that choice, they never experienced the blessing of God. They lived the rest of their lives in a wilderness. So to the young folk in church today, I need to tell you something. I understand that there is so much else which seems so exciting in life. Your friends will tell you there's nothing better than whatever it is that they're into at that time. And I understand that you won't want to feel different from them. I understand that you want to fit, will want to fit in and be accepted by your friends. But please remember that you have something in your grasp which is so much better and will outlast it all. So please, please, young people, do not make the foolish choice that the Israelites made all those years ago. Don't turn your back on God. Don't exchange the promised land for a wilderness. But here in our passage, we're told about those who did come in to the promised land. They were the people who believed in God. They were the people who trusted in his promise. They were the people who loved him and followed him. And so they were the people who were brought within God's covenant community. Their parents had rebelled and their parents had died in the wilderness. But that relationship had been renewed with the next generation. And so they had the privilege of receiving the sign of the covenant. And do you notice the effect that this has? We read of it in verse 9. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. 
Do you see, all the time that the people had been wandering in the wilderness, there'd been a question mark hanging over God's people and whether God would deliver on the promise that he'd made to Abraham. It's summed up very well by Moses when he pleads for the Israelites after their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. This is what he pleaded to God. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he promised them, and because he hated them, he's brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. You see, while the Israelites were dying in the wilderness during those 40 years of wanderings, the Egyptians could taunt and say that God had simply taken them out of Egypt to kill them. In response, Moses prayed to God that he would bring the children of, and God undertook to bring the children of that rebellious generation into the land. Now that the next generation had been brought into the promised land, and now they have received the sign in their bodies confirming that they were the covenant people of God, then the taunts of the Egyptians stopped. And Gilgal means to turn or to roll, because there, while the Israelites were camped there, God turned away the taunts of the Egyptians and rolled them back, demonstrating the covenant bond that he had with his people. How can we apply this to our lives today? Both the world and the devil can taunt us as Christians. Perhaps we feel the reproach of others through some sin or that we have committed or some spectacular failure in our life. The gospel rolls away this guilt and shame. If we're Christians, then we have a new life in Christ. This is what the circumcision of the Old Testament points us to. And the new life in Christ deflects and turns away the taunts of others. For if we're justified in the Lord Jesus, we need have no shame at all for past sin, but we can hold our heads high because God has declared us to be righteous. Paul declares this precise the same thing in Romans 8. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so Paul goes on. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Shouldn't this then be an encouragement to us as we go into the week ahead if we're Christians? Christ is for us. Who can be against us? Well, we've seen the relationship of the Israelites with God recounted through the stones which were raised up as Gilgal. And we've seen their relationship renewed at Gilgal. But now we need to see how their relationship is remembered at Gilgal. For we read in verse 10, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, 
they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. If I suggested that we met up for coffee and then said, let's meet on the third Sunday in June, you would immediately take note of that date. Because you would say, that's Father's Day. Did you notice in the first verse that we read this morning, it told us the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. For the Israelites, that day would have had a huge significance. They'd immediately know and have known what it was. For when they were back in Egypt, God had commanded that on the tenth day of the first month, Israelites were to select their Passover lamb. So you see, God's timing was perfect. He brought them across the Jordan and they came out of the, out of the Jordan onto, into the promised land on the very day when their Passover preparations were due to start. As they entered the promised land, the first thing they had to do was to pause and remember the Lord's intervention that had started this journey way back in Egypt. And so it is that four days later, in accordance with the timing given to them by God, they celebrate the Passover to mark their entrance into the land of their inheritance. In keeping the Passover, they look back to the event that occurred 40 years earlier, just before they were released from Egypt. They would not be here today in Gilgal if that event had not taken place. And you may recall the events of that first Passover in Egypt. We read of them in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover lamb was selected. It was to be a spotless male lamb without blemish. It was then to be killed and some hyssop dipped in the blood and the hyssop used to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the door of the house. The lamb was to be roasted and eaten, but not a bone in its body was to be broken. Then in the middle of the night, the Lord passed through the land and executed judgment on all. There was to be no escape from the greatest land to the lowliest, from Pharaoh to the prisoner in his dungeon. None would escape the Lord's wrath except those sheltering in the houses with the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts. The Lord passed over those houses and those inside were kept safe. So as the Israelites settled into the land of their inheritance at Gilgal, they celebrated the Passover at twilight. Sitting round their campfires that evening, they looked back to that first Passover and could be at peace 
knowing that the God who had provided for their protection in that night of judgment would also watch over them in the coming days. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, then doesn't this passage give you encouragement because you know so much more than those people camped at Gilgal? Next week, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper and you will be able to participate in the Lord's Supper because you know who the Passover lamb truly is. You know that the Passover lamb that they sacrificed at Gilgal did not just point back to the first Passover in Egypt, but it also pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. You know that Jesus was the true, perfect and holy Lamb of God. You know that he was the one without blemish who was to be chosen and sacrificed just as those Israelites chose their Passover lamb the day they came into Canaan. You know that he hung and suffered on the cross and just like the Passover lamb, Not one bone in his body was broken. You know that the wrath of God is going to come to all men and women in this world. From the greatest to the most lowliest, there will be no escape. But you know that the wrath of God will not be poured out on you if you're a Christian. Because it was poured out on him. My friends, just as the children of Israel sat at peace that evening in the twilight at Gilgal, celebrating the Passover, you can be at peace, knowing that you are safe for all eternity, for you are resting under the blood of the Lamb. But friends, if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, I need you to know that you are not sitting around that campfire. And you cannot share in any of that assurance. Please remember, Israelites sat around their campfires in the twilight. There were other people on the plains of Jericho. They found no peace or assurance in a Passover lamb. And indeed, those referred to in verse 1 of chapter 5 are described as having hearts which had melted and there was no spirit left in them. If you're not trusting in Christ, then the Bible is clear that you have no reason to be at peace. But it's worse than that because the Bible tells you that you are not safe. Not only are you outside God's covenant, but you are just as exposed to the wrath of God as the Egyptians were. So my dear friend, if ever there was a passage that should urge us to come to Christ, it must surely be this. We're urged to come and trust in the Passover lamb who is Jesus. And share in the peace and protection that he brings.
But more than that, if you do so, you will be brought into that camp and share in the glorious inheritance which God promises to those who trust and follow him. Let's pray together. Our Lord and God, we thank you that you have indeed given us a Passover lamb, uh, the one who takes away uh, the sins of all his people. And we bless you, Lord, that we do not choose that lamb, but you grant him to us. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your son and for salvation and peace with God, which we may, may be found through him. Amen.